folks. Folks. Thank you very much for joining me here today. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. And this is Tuesday, which right now means Vintage Sidecar, where we shed some light on classic lit. Right now, Sherlock Holmes. We're in the midst of our Sherlock Holmes read-through, start to finish the Sherlock Holmes catalog. We are going top to bottom with Sherlock Holmes' Vintage Side Cloaks. <laughs> says Wildcard. We're bringing back the cloak, everybody. Vintage side cloaks, says Wildcard. That's not bad. Um, SCSC suits Sherlock. Very random. Um, we'll figure it out. We'll figure out what what our what our <laughs> cloak revivalist group is going to be named. Um, a spot of review, as we are now uh, just past the halfway point, roughly, in Sherlock Holmes' The Sign of Four. The Sign of Four. Um, this sign of four is referring to uh, a, a a signature, essentially, that's been left on a couple of notes. But let's do our broad review, and then our, we'll, we'll zoom in on what we read last week. Our broad review here. There's a woman named Mrs. Morstan. Miss Morstan, excuse me. Miss Morstan uh, came into uh, uh, <laughs> Sherlock and Watson's lives, and thank goodness she did, because Watson was so bored, he was shooting cocaine. Um, she's got a very peculiar mystery. Her father disappeared 10 years ago, just said that he was going to be uh, at a certain hotel and disappeared, never seen again. Um, and then about six years ago, she starts receiving packages. Each of these packages, once a year, each of these packages contains a single quite valuable pearl. And now after six years of this, suddenly, whoever has been sending these pearls wants to meet. She goes and meets with him and finds that it is a Mr. Thaddeus Sholto, and he explains the whole mystery up to this point, essentially. Her father and his father were very, very close uh, off in the military in India. Did I say Watson? I might have said Watson was shooting cocaine. It's definitely Sherlock shooting cocaine and not Watson. I may have goofed that up. Um, just to be clear... <laughs> Thank you, Proteus Spade. Yes, Sherlock was bored. Watson does not shoot cocaine. As a matter of fact, Watson is trying to get Sherlock to stop. To little avail so far. Anyway, it is fortunate that, that Sherlock is once again distracted. Um, but the, the initial mystery is explained. Mr. Thaddeus Sholto, um, his father and Miss Morstan's father, were both uh, in the military in India. They found a treasure. They came back. Um... Upon the night when they were supposed to uh, sort of divvy up this treasure, suddenly, her father suddenly dies. Even uh, uh, even uh, Sholto, the, uh, the the other um, sort of sharing in this treasure, um, e even his most trusted servant doesn't believe that he's innocent. Uh, doesn't he? Th this servant believes that uh, Sholto killed this man, um, and so. If even he won't believe, uh, Sholto decides it would just be best to get rid of the body. Um, and uh, he tells this to his sons, including Mr. Thaddeus and Bartholomew Sholto, who we meet eventually here. It's a bit convoluted. Like I said, as per usual with mystery stories, if you really want a decent uh, review, you're going to have to go back and listen to the whole thing. I'm so sorry. Uh, and you can do so. Uh, Linktree slash scs playlists l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash scs playlists there you go however we fast forward a bit and uh the 
Mr. Sholto, Officer Sholto, dies. And uh, he dies immediately before telling his sons... Thaddeus and Bartholomew, where he hid this treasure. He tells about, like, what happened to uh, Miss Morstan's father. And then, of course, uh, uh, this is about six years ago. This is when these two, Thaddeus and Bartholomew, start sending these pearls. Because they don't know where the, the whole treasure is. They just know where this tiny piece is with these pearls on it. And so, now we fast forward to the present day. Thaddeus Sholto uh, explains all of this to Miss Morstan at the meeting. And then they say, look, he says, my brother Bartholomew has discovered the location of the treasure, finally, after six years, uh, after my father's death. They head out to the Pondicherry Lodge, kind of a hotel, um, in which, apparently, this treasure lies. And when they arrive, they find that Bartholomew has died. And this is where we sort of pick up with last week. Bartholomew Sholto, search for this treasure. He finds it. And then we enter the room uh, to find uh, Bartholomew Sholto with a terrible, creepy smile on his face. He's been poisoned with a, a thorn dart in the neck. Uh, someone has been up in the attic space where he found the treasure. Uh, and then a uh, uh, an Athelney Jones, Inspector Athelney Jones, arrives uh, to sort of take over. And Sherlock says, all right, look, we don't want to hang around here with this goober <laughs> this nerd lord Athelney it's time to get out of here um, so instead we leave we follow another clue um, there are all sorts of clues uh, essentially Sherlock has determined that there were two people one of them with a wooden leg one of them with noticeably small feet and the one with the very small feet uh, has sort of like helped the wooden legged man to get in and out of the room with the treasure and then this uh, this individual with the small feet accidentally stepped in some creosote. Now, let me figure out what exactly is creosote, because I just realized I was thinking about this earlier. Creosote. Creosote is the ingredient that gives liquid smoke its function. Lends the taste creosote oils helps to act as a preservative. Somehow, I don't think this is for creosote, a brownish oily liquid obtained from coal tar and used especially to preserve wood. Okay, that would explain why it was in a lumber yard. Um, all this to say, uh, this second individual with the very small feet steps in some very, uh, a, a chemical with a particularly loud odor, and uh, as such, Sherlock sends Watson to drop Miss Morstan off at home, fetch a dog to follow this scent, and they follow it through the streets. And this is where we leave off last week, because they're following it through the streets. This dog, Toby, uh, an expert uh, 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 nose dog, an expert tracking dog. We follow this trail of creosote through the streets of London, and we arrive at a big old barrel of creosote. Um, turns out Toby just took a wrong turn. There was a point where the, the trail sort of diverged because apparently the small-footed individual crossed paths with a truck carrying a barrel of creosote. Finally, we arrive at the... Uh, <laughs> we arrive at this lumberyard uh, and our friends uh, Sherlock and Watson just crack up over the fact that, well, Toby did a great job. He followed the brief. He's looking for creosote, and he found the most powerful source of creosote smell in the area. That's where we're at. However, we know that this trail leads off in another direction. Will Sherlock and Watson be able to pick it up again?
Chapter 8. The Baker Street Irregulars. <laughs> all right, all right, what now? I asked. Toby, he's lost his character for infallibility. He acted according to his lights, said Holmes, lifting him down from the barrel and walking him out of the timber yard. If you consider how much creosote is carted about London in one day, it is no great wonder that our trail should have been crossed. It is much used now, especially for the seasoning of wood. Poor Toby is not to blame. Well, we got to get back on the main scent again, I suppose. All right, hold, hold on a second. I've got to shut the bathroom window here because it's going to let in the beeping noise that is ever present. Sam, I hear you say. There's always a beeping noise. Yeah, well, sometimes you can hear it better than others, so I figure I'll do what I can. All right. Okay. All right. We're good. We're back. Got to get back on the mindset again, I suppose. <laughs> Good courage. No, good courage. No, I am not in the bathroom. There is a bathroom door in the corner. <laughs> a fair question, good courage. No, I, I do not stream from the bathroom. I used to stream from the bedroom, um, but I, I realized that is a, a much less notable scenario. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, we got to get back on a mindset again, I suppose. Yes. And fortunately, we've got no distance to go. Evidently, what puzzled the dog at the corner of Knight's place was that there were two different trails running in opposite directions. We took the wrong one. It only remains to follow the other one. There was no difficulty about this. On leading Toby to the place where he had committed his fault, he cast about in a wide circle and finally dashed off in a fresh direction. We must take care he does not now bring us to the place where the creosote barrel came from, I observed. I had thought of that, but you notice he keeps on the pavement, whereas the barrel passed down the roadway. No, I think we are on the true scent now. It tended down toward the riverside, running through Belmont Place and Prince's Street. At the end of Broad Street, it ran right down to the water's edge, where there was a small wooden wharf. Toby led us to the very edge of this and stood there whining, looking out to the dark current beyond. We are out of luck, said Holmes. They've taken to a boat here. Several small punts and skiffs were lying about in the water and on the edge of the wharf. We took Toby round to each one in turn, but though he sniffed earnestly, he made no sign. Close to the rude landing stage was a small brick house and a wooden placard slung out the second window. Mordecai Smith was printed across it in large letters, and underneath, boats to hire by the hour or day. A second inscription above the door informed us that a steam launch was kept, a statement which was confirmed by a great pile of coke upon the jetty. Sherlock Holmes looked slowly round, and his face assumed an ominous expression. This looks bad, said he. These fellows are sharper than I expected. They seem to have covered their tracks. There has, I fear, been preconcerted management here. He was approaching the door of the house when it opened, and a little curly-headed lad of six came running out, followed by a stoutish, red-faced woman with a large sponge in her hand. 
You come back and get washed, Jackie! She shouted. Come back, you young imp! For if your father comes home and finds you like that, he'll let us hear of it! Dear little chap, said Holmes, strategically. What a rosy-cheeked young rascal. Now, Jack, is there anything that you would like? The youth pondered for a moment. I would like a shilling, said he. Nothing you would like better? I like two shillings better, the prodigy answered after some thought. Here you are, then. Catch! A fine child, Mrs. Smith. Lord bless you, he is that and forward. It's almost too much for me to manage, especially when my man's away for days at a time. Away, is he? said Holmes in a disappointed voice. I'm sorry for that, for I wanted to speak with Mr. Smith. He's been away since yesterday morning, sir, and truth to tell you, I'm beginning to feel frightened about him. But if it was about a boat, sir, maybe I could serve as well. I wanted to hire his steam launch. Why, bless you, sir, it's the steam launch that he's gone on. That's what puzzles me, sir. For I know there ain't more coals on her that were taken about Woolwich and back. If... I realized with my uh, Athelney Jones voice <laughs> from last week that I gotta I gotta take these a little bit more carefully. I can't just rush into these these character voices without without regard for audibility or coherence. Why bless you, sir! It's in the steam launch that he's gone. That's what puzzles me. For I know there ain't more coals in it than would take her about Woolwich and back. If he'd been away on the barge, I'd have thought nothing for many a time a job is taking him as far as Gravesend. And then if there was much doing there, he might have stayed over. But what good is a steam launch without coals? He might have bought some at a wharf down the river. He might, sir, but it weren't his way. Many a time I heard him call out the prices they charge for a few odd bags. Besides, I don't like that wooden-legged man with his ugly face and outlandish talk. What did he always want knocking around here for? A wooden-legged man, said Holmes with bland surprise. Yes, sir. Brown chap that's called more than to my old man. It was him what roused him up last night. What's more, my man knew he were coming, for he had his steam up in the launch. I tell you straight, sir, I don't feel easy in my mind about it. But, my dear Mrs. Smith, said Holmes, shrugging his shoulders, you're frightening yourself about nothing. How could you possibly tell that it was the wooden-legged man who came last night? I don't quite understand how you can be so sure. His voice, sir! I knew his voice was kind of thick and foggy. He tapped about the window. About three, it would be. Show a leg, matey, said he. Time to turn out guard. My old man woke up, Jim, that's me oldest, and away they went, without so much as a word to me. I could hear the wooden leg clacking on the stones. And it was this wooden-legged man alone? Couldn't say, I'm sure, sir. I didn't hear no one else. I'm sorry, Mrs Smith, for I wanted a steam launch, and I've heard good reports of the... Let me see, what was her name? The Aurora, sir. Ah... She's not that old green launch with a yellow line, very broad in the beam. No, indeed. She's as trim a little thing as was any on the river. She'd been fresh painted, black with two red streaks. Thanks. 
I hope that you will hear soon from Mr. Smith. I'm going down the river, and if I should see anything of the Aurora, I shall let him know that you are uneasy. A black funnel, you say? No, sir. Black with a white band. Ah, yes, of course. It, it was the sides which were black. Good morning, Mrs. Smith. There is a boatman here with a wherry, Watson. We shall take it and cross the river. Hmm. The main thing with people of that sort, said Holmes, as we sat in the sheets of the wherry, never let them think that their information can be of the slightest importance to you. If you do, they will instantly shut up like an oyster. If you listen to them under protest, as it were, you are very likely to get what you want. Well, our course now seems pretty clear, said I. What would you do then? I would engage a launch, go down the river, on the track of the Aurora. My dear fellow, it would be a colossal task. She may have touched down at any wharf on either side of the stream between here and Greenwich. Below the bridge, there's a perfect labyrinth of landing places for miles. It would take days, days and days to exhaust them, if you set out about it alone. Employ the police, then? No, I shall probably call Athony Jones in at the last moment. He's not a bad fellow, and I should not like to have anything to injure him professionally, but I've got a fancy for working it out myself, now that we've gone so far. Could we advertise, then? Ask him for information from Warfingers? Worse and worse, our man would know that the trace was hot at their heels, and they would go off about the country. As it is, they are likely enough to leave, but as long as they think that they're perfectly safe, they will be in no hurry. Jones's energy will be of use to us there, for his view of the case is sure to push itself into the daily press, and the runaways will think that Everyone is off on the wrong scent. What are we to do, then? I asked, as we landed near Millbank Penitentiary. Take this hansom, drive home, have some breakfast, get an hour's sleep. It is quite on the cards that we may be afoot tonight again. Stop at a telegraph office, cabby. We should keep Toby, for he may be of use to us yet. We pulled up at the Great Peter Street Post Office, and Holmes dispatched his wire. "'Whom do you think that is to?' he asked, as we resumed our journey. <sighs> "'I'm sure I don't know.' "'You remember the Baker Street Division of the Detective Police Force who I'm employed in the Jefferson Hope case?' "'Well,' said I, laughing, "'this is just the case where they might be invaluable.' "'I'm going to sneeze. "'I'm going to sneeze. It's on its way.' <laughs> <laughs> Shotzi says, uh. <laughs> okay, good. Good courage. Says, Sam sounds like Monty Python guy doing a Cockney Lady voice, and I love it. I love this voice. Use it for Arwen. <laughs> says, Good courage. Uh, and Pretty Spade says, Good lord, that'd be really intrusive if she spoke more than a couple sentences. And she very much did. Um, but uh, yeah, Good Courage is right. I do have some background in singing, and uh, I did learn, I've, I have learned in the past four years or so which voice, like what parts of my throat I can engage in certain ways for how long. And believe it or not, I can. I can just go with that one. <laughs> I've got, I've got, um, I've got some, some good endurance with that one. Unfortunately for all of you. You remember the Baker Street Division of the Detective Police Force, the ones whom I employed in the Jefferson Hope case. <laughs> well, said I, laughing. This is just the case where they might be invaluable. 
If they fail, I have got other resources, but I shall try them first. That wire was to my dirty little Lieutenant Wiggins, and I expect that he and his gang will be with us before we have finished our breakfast. It was between eight and nine o'clock now, and I was conscious of a strong reaction after the successive excitements of the night. I was limp and weary, befogged in mind and fatigued in body. I had not the professional enthusiasm which carried my companion on, nor could I look at the matter as a mere abstract intellectual problem. As far as the death of Bartholomew Sholto went on, I had heard little good of him, and I could feel no intense antipathy to his murderers. The treasure, however, was a different matter. That, or part of it, belonged rightfully to Miss Morstan. While there was a chance of recovering it, I was ready to devote my life to one object. True, if I found it, it would probably put her forever beyond my reach. Yet it would be a petty and selfish love which would be influenced by such a thought as that. If Holmes could work to find the criminals, I had a tenfold stronger reason to urge me on to find the treasure. A bath at Baker Street and a complete change freshened me up wonderfully. When I came down to our room, I found the breakfast laid and Holmes pouring out the coffee. Here it is, <laughs> said he, laughing and pointing to an open newspaper. The energetic Jones and the ubiquitous reporter have fixed it up between them. But you've had enough of the case. Better have your ham and eggs first. I took the paper from him and read the short notice, which was headed, Mysterious Business at Upper Norwood. About twelve o'clock last night, said the standard, Mr. Bartholomew Sholto of Pondicherry Lodge, Upper Norwood, was found dead in his room under circumstances which point to foul play. As far as we can learn, no actual traces of violence were found upon Mr. Sholto's person, but a valuable collection of Indian gems, which the deceased gentleman had inherited from his father, had been carried off. The discovery was first made by Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, who had called upon the house with Mr. Thaddeus Sholto, brother of the deceased. By a singular piece of good fortune, Mr. Atherley Jones, the well-known member of the detective police force, happened to be at the Norwood police station, and was on the ground within half an hour of the first alarm. His trained and experienced faculties were at once directed toward the detection of the criminals, with the gratifying result that the brother, Thaddeus Sholto, has already been arrested, together with the housekeeper, Mrs. Burnstone, an Indian butler named Lal Rao, a porter or gatekeeper named McMurdo. It is quite certain that the thief or thieves were well acquainted with the house, for Mr. Jones's well-known technical knowledge and his powers of minute observation have enabled him to prove conclusively that the miscreants could not have entered by the door or by the window, but must have made their way across the roof of the building, and so through a trap door, into a room which communicated with that in which the body was found. This fact, which has been clearly made out, proves conclusively that it was no mere haphazard burglary. The prompt and energetic action of the officers of the law shows the great advantage of the presence on such occasions of a single vigorous and masterful mind. We cannot but think that it supplies an argument to those who would wish to see our detectives more decentralized, and so brought into closer and more effective touch with the cases which is their duty to investigate. Isn't it gorgeous, said Holmes, grinning over his coffee cup. What do you think of it? I think we had a close shave ourselves of being arrested for the crime. So do I. I wouldn't answer for our safety now. If he should happen to have another of his attacks of energy. At this moment there was a loud ring at the bell. And I could hear Mrs. Hudson, our landlady, raising her voice into a wail of expostulation and dismay. Boy, Evans, Holmes, I said, half rising. I believe they really are after us. Oh no, it's not. Quite as bad as that. It is the unofficial force, the Baker Street Irregulars. 
As he spoke, there came a swift pattering of naked feet upon the stairs, a clatter of high voices, and in rushed a dozen dirty and ragged little street urchins. There was some show of discipline among them, despite their tumultuous entry, for instantly they drew up into a line and stood facing us with expectant faces. One of their number, taller and older than the others, stood forward with an air of lounging superiority, which was very funny in such a disreputable little scarecrow. "'Got your message, sir,' said he, "'and brought em on sharp. Three bob and a tanner for tickets.' "'Here you are,' said Holmes, producing some silver. "'In the future they can report to you, Wiggins, and you to me. "'I cannot have the house invaded in this way. "'However, it is just as well that you should all be here to hear the instructions. "'I want you to find the whereabouts of a steam launch called the Aurora. "'Owner, Mordecai Smith, black with two red streaks, funnel black with a white band. "'She's down the river somewhere. "'I want one boy to be at Mordecai Smith's landing stage, opposite Millbank, "'to say if the boat comes back. "'You must divide it out amongst yourselves and do both banks thoroughly.' Let me know the moment you've got news. Is that clear? Yes, Governor, said Wiggins. The old scale of pay and a guinea to the boy who finds the boat. Here is a day in advance. Now, off you go. He handed them each a shilling and away they buzzed down the stairs. And I saw them a moment later streaming down the street. If the launch is above water, they will find her, said Holmes as he rose from the table and lit his pipe. They can go everywhere, see everything, overhear everyone. I expect to hear before evening that they have spotted her. In the meanwhile, we can do nothing but await results. Hmm. We cannot pick up a broken trail until we find either the Aurora or Mr. Mordecai Smith. Toby could eat these scraps, I dare say. Are you going to bed, Holmes? Oh, I'm not tired. I have a curious constitution. I never remember feeling tired by work, though idleness exhausts me completely. I'm going to smoke and to think over this queer business to which my fair client has introduced us. If ever man has an easy task, this of ours might be. Wooden-legged men are not so common, but the other man must, I should think, be absolutely unique. The other man again? I've got no wish to make a mystery of him. But to you, anyway. But you must have informed your own opinion. Now, do consider the data. Diminutive footmarks, toes never fettered by boots, naked feet... Stone-headed wooden mace, great agility, small poisoned darts. What do you make of all this? Perhaps one of those Indians who were the associates of Jonathan Small, I exclaimed. Hardly that, said he. When I first saw signs of strange weapons, I was inclined to think so, but the remarkable character of the footmark caused me to reconsider my views. Some inhabitants of the Indian peninsula are small men, but none could have left marks such as that. The Hindu proper has long and thin feet. The sandal-wearing Mohammedan has the great toe, well separate from the others because the thong is commonly passed between. His little darts, too, could only be shot in one way. They're from a blowpipe. Now then, where are we to find our second individual? South American, I hazarded. He stretched his hand up and took down a bulky volume from the shelf. This is the first volume of a gazetteer which is now being published. It may be looked upon as the very latest authority. What do we have here? Andaman Islands, located 340 miles to the north of Sumatra, in the Bay of Bengal. Hmm. <laughs> What's all this? Moist climate, coral reefs, sharks, Port Blair, convict barracks, Rutland Island, Cottonwoods. Ah, yes, here we are. The Aborigines of the Andaman Islands may perhaps claim the distinctiveness of being the smallest race upon this earth, although some anthropologists prefer the Bushmen of Africa, the Digger Indians of America, and the Teradelphians. 
The average height is rather below four feet, though many full-grown adults may be found who are very much smaller than this. They are a fierce, morose, and intractable people, though capable of forming most devoted friendships when their confidence has been gained. Mark that, Watson. Now, then, listen to this. Uh, and then it goes on, let's see, frankly, a fairly racist tirade. Um, their feet and hands, however, are remarkably small. So intractable and fierce are they that all the efforts of the British official have failed to win them over in any degree. They have always been a terror to shipwrecked crews, braining the survivors with their stone-headed clubs or shooting them down with their poisoned arrows. Oof. Amiable people, Watson. If this fellow has been left to his own unaided devices, this affair might have taken a more ghastly turn. I fancy that, even as it is, Jonathan Small would give a good deal not to have employed him. But how is it that he came to have such a singular companion? That is more than I can tell. Since, however, we have already determined that Small came from the Andamans, it is not so very wonderful that this islander should be with him. No doubt we shall know about it all in time. Look here, Watson. You look regularly done. Lie down here on the sofa. See if I can put you to sleep. He took up his violin from the corner, and as I stretched myself out, he began to play some low, dreamy, melodious air. His own, no doubt, for he had a remarkable gift for improvisation. I have a vague remembrance of his gaunt limbs, his earnest face, and the rise and fall of his bow. Then I seemed to have floated peacefully away upon a soft sea of sound, until I found myself in dreamland, with the sweet face of Mary Morstan looking down upon me. We're back in it. We're back in it, gang. Here we are. Now, uh, a few things that I do want to uh, discuss here. Uh, let's talk about a couple of things. First of all, um, this is a phrase which the official etymology does not mention it being, I mean, particularly racist. Um, but then again, I mean, it, at the same time, I, th I think it kind of is. Um, I have been replacing a word regularly. Uh, whenever I call them street urchins, um, they are referred to here in the text as street Arabs. Now, um, this is not an actual denotation of race, although it is derived from one. Uh, they are uh, is essentially commenting on uh, them being nomadic, uh, and and like it, it is it, it essentially in this case is intended to mean the same thing as street urchin. Uh, they are not actually Arabic individuals. Um, uh, I, I suppose simply just making the connection between. Uh, individuals on the street who sort of like roam from neighborhood to neighborhood and individuals in uh, <laughs> in the Middle East uh, who are nomadic. Um, like I said, I, I didn't pick up an immediate uh, like willful racism there, you know, simply commenting on, uh, you know, nomads. But uh, at the same time, a lot of these do have like they have come from places of racism very frequently, and so, yes, I have been replacing that term uh, with the word urchin, which, frankly, I don't know the etymology of the word urchin, so I hope I'm not just stepping from one muck pile into another. Uh, however, this this uh, volume, let's see, uh, the first volume of a gazetteer, which is now being published, uh, this one does have, I mean, it 
throughout does provide a a pretty racist uh, portrayal of these folks. Um, uh, And then at one line was like, just so very... (laughs) At two different lines uh, was inescapably so, and so I've I've decided to omit those. But uh, at the end of the day, we are looking for someone of uh, a rather unique anatomy. Um, I think that is that is fair to say, uh, anatomy that is is uh, unique to certain parts of the world, and certainly unique uh, among the populace of this time in London, uh, right? So they're they're looking for someone that uh, is going to have you know different colored skin, uh, different. Uh, uh, stature than most of the folks that they know. Um, that is essentially what this is saying. But, uh, yep, let's call it when we see it a <laughs> a terribly racist uh, depiction of these folk. Um, now, with that said, we know who we're looking for, right? To sort of return back to our mystery here. Um, uh, a, a brief summary, because like I said, we've got a, a lot to read today. So I think I'm going to, I'll throw a chatterbreak question at you, but um, uh, then we're going to roll right into our next chapter here. Um, we are looking for, well, we're looking for somebody who is fairly distinctive. We're looking for a boat, which Sherlock Holmes kind of cleverly was able to uh, uh, gather an exact description for. Uh, and he has sent his street urchins off in pursuit of this ship. It's not a ship, it's a boat. Um, this uh, this steamboat, this river steamboat. Here's my chatterbreak question for you. Where's the line? Let me, let me find the, the particular line here. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Here we go. Holmes says we can do nothing but await results. Just a few lines later, he says, No, I'm not tired. I have a curious constitution. I never remember feeling tired by work, though idleness exhausts me completely. He has said we can't do anything until we pick up the trail of either the Aurora, which is the steamboat, or Mr. Mordecai Smith. Well, we have to find one of these two. All that's to be done is to wait, and we know how Sherlock feels about waiting. I would like to know from you all as our chatterbreak question, how do you think Sherlock Holmes is going to fare here? There is a mystery afoot, and Sherlock Holmes has things to think about, but he does... He does have a... He does have a a sort of point of pause here, where he can't really do anything else for a little while. How is Sherlock going to react? All right, a bit of review. Um, Sherlock and Watson follow the trail of creosote down to the riverbank, um, the river passing through uh, 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 London, of course, and uh, you know, covered in you know steam steamboats and and uh, tiny little boats that wander back and forth carrying cargo and such. Um, he finds that the people that we are pursuing have jumped on this steamboat and indeed taken some precautions that their trail should be lost. There's essentially premeditation in this, which is something that Sherlock was apparently worried about. We get some information, and uh, Sherlock summons up his street urchin army uh, to to uh, go about London and find this boat or the owner thereof, Mordecai Smith. 
In the meantime, all they can do is wait. Uh, and after all this, uh, Sherlock is able to determine some of the uh, some of the particulars of the individual that we are searching for. This one who stepped in the creosote, uh, apparently someone from a particular island, um, uh, in which uh, there uh, this individual's very small stature and. Um, uh, some some other sort of a some other features atypical of this time in London. They're looking for a very singular individual and uh, a very singular boat. Now all there is to do is to wait. Chapter 9. A Break in the Chain It was late in the afternoon before I woke, strengthened and refreshed. Sherlock Holmes sat exactly as I had left him, save that he had laid aside his violin and was deep in a book. He looked across at me as I stirred, and I noticed that his face was dark and troubled. "'You have slept soundly,' he said. "'I feared that our talk would wake you.' "'I heard nothing,' I answered. "'You've had fresh news, then?' Unfortunately, no. I, I confess I am surprised and disappointed. I expected something definite by this time. Wiggins has just been up to report. He says that no trace can be found of the launch. It's a provoking check for every hour is of importance. Could I do anything? I'm perfectly fresh now, quite ready for another night's outing. No, we can do nothing. We can only wait. If we go ourselves, the message might come in of our absence and delay is caused. <sighs> You can do what you will, but I must remain on guard. Then I shall run over to Camberwell, call on Mrs. Cecil Forrester. She asked me to yesterday. On Mrs. Cecil Forrester, said Holmes, with a twinkle of a smile in his eyes. Well, of course, on Miss Morstan, too. They were anxious to hear what happens. I would not tell them too much, said Holmes. Women are never to be entirely trusted, not the best of them. I did not pause to argue over this atrocious sentiment. We'll be back in an hour or two, I remarked. All right, good luck. But I say, if you're crossing the river, you may as well return, Toby, for I don't think it likely at all that we shall have any use for him now. I took our mongrel accordingly and left him, together with a half-sovereign, at the old naturalist's in Pynchon Lane. At Camberwell, I found Miss Morstan a little weary after her night's adventures, but very eager to hear the news. Mrs. Forrester, too, was full of curiosity. I told them all that we had done, suppressing, however, the more dreadful part of the tragedy. Thus, although I spoke of Mr. Sholto's death, I said nothing of the exact manner and method of it. With all my omissions, however, there was enough to startle and amaze them. "'But it's a romance!' cried Mrs. Forrester. "'An injured lady, half a million in treasure, a uh, wooden-legged ruffian. They take place of the conventional dragon or the wicked earl.' "'And two knights errant to the rescue?' added Miss Morstan, with a bright glance at me. "'Why, Mary, your fortune depends on the issue of this search. "'I don't think you're nearly excited enough. "'Just imagine what it must be like to be so rich, to have the world at your feet.' "'It sent a little thrill of joy to my heart to notice that she showed no sign of elation at the prospect. "'On the contrary, she gave a toss of her proud head as though the matter were one in which she took small interest.' 
"'It's for Mr Thaddeus Sholto that I'm anxious,' she said. "'Nothing else is of any consequence, "'but I think that he's behaved most kindly and honourably throughout. "'It's our duty to clear him of this dreadful and unfounded charge.' "'It was evening before I left Camberwell, "'and quite dark by the time I reached home. "'My companion's book and pipe lay by his chair, "'but he had disappeared. "'I looked about in the hope of seeing a note, "'but there was none.' "'I suppose Mr. Sherlock Holmes has gone out,' I said to Mrs. Hudson as she came up to lower the blinds. "'No, sir, he's gone up to his room, sir.' "'Do you know, sir?' Sinking her voice into an impressive whisper. "'I am afraid for his health.' "'Why so, Mrs. Hudson?' "'Well, is that strange, sir? "'After you was gone, he walked and he walked up and down and up and down till I was weary the sound of his footsteps that I heard him talking to himself and muttering and every time the bell rang he came out under the stairhead with it what is that Mrs Hudson and now he's gone and slammed off to his room and I can hear him walking away same as ever I do hope he's not going to be ill sir I ventured to say something to him about cooling medicine but he turned on me sir with such a look don't know how I ever got out of the room "'I don't think you've got cause to be uneasy, Mrs. Hudson,' I answered. "'I've seen him like this before. "'He's got some small matter upon his mind which makes him restless.' "'I tried to speak lightly to our worthy landlady, "'but I was myself somewhat uneasy when, through the long night, "'I still, from time to time, heard the dull sound of his tread "'and knew how his keen spirit was chafing against this involuntary inaction. "'At breakfast time he looked worn and haggard, with a little fleck of feverish colour upon either cheek. "'You are knocking yourself up, old man,' I remarked. "'I heard you marching about in the night.' "'No, I could not sleep,' he answered. "'This infernal problem is consuming me. "'It's too much to be balked by so petty an obstacle "'when all else had been overcome. "'I know the men that launch everything, "'and yet I can get no news.' I've set other agencies at work and used every means at my disposal. The whole river has been searched on either side, but there's no news. Nor has Mrs. Smith heard of her husband. I shall come to the conclusion soon that they've scuttled the craft, but there are objections to that. Or that Mrs. Smith has put us on the wrong scent. No. No, I think that could be dismissed. I, I've made inquiries. There is a launch of that description. Could it have gone up the river? I consider that possibility too, and there was a search party who will work up as far as Richmond. If no news comes today, I shall start off myself tomorrow and go for the men rather than the boat. But surely, surely, we shall hear something. We did not, however. Not a word came to us, either from Wiggins or from the other agencies. There were articles in most of the papers upon the Norwood tragedy. They all appeared to be rather hostile to the unfortunate Thaddeus Sholto. No fresh details were to be found, however, in any of them, save that an inquest was to be held on the following day. I walked over to Camberwell in the evening to report our ill success to the ladies, and on my return I found Holmes dejected and somewhat morose. He would hardly reply to my questions, and busied himself all evening in an abstruse chemical analysis which involved much heating of retorts and distilling of vapors, ending at last in a smell which fairly drove me out of the apartment. Up to the small hours of the morning, I could hear the clinking of his test tubes, which told me he was still engaged in his malodorous experiment.
in the early dawn. I woke with a start and was surprised to find him standing at my bedside, clad in a rude sailor dress with a pea jacket and a coarse red scarf around his neck. "'I'm off down the river, Watson,' said he. "'I've been turning it over in my mind, and I can see only one way of working it out. It is worth trying, at all events.' "'Surely I can come with you, then,' said I. "'No. It would be much more useful if you would remain here as my representative. I am loath to go, but for it's quite on the cards that some message may come during the day, though Wiggins was despondent about it last night. I want you to open all notes and telegrams and to act your own judgment if any news should come. Can I rely on you? Most certainly. I'm afraid you will not be able to wire for me, for I can hardly yet tell where I will find myself. If I'm in luck, however, I may not be gone so very long. I shall have news of some sort or the other before I get back. I had heard nothing of him by breakfast time. On opening the standard, however, I found that there was fresh allusion to the business. "'With reference to the Upper Norwood tragedy,' it remarked, "'we have reason to believe that the matter promises to be even more complex and mysterious than was originally supposed. Fresh evidence has shown that it is quite impossible that Mr. Thaddeus Sholto could have been in any way concerned with the matter. He and his housekeeper, Mrs. Burnstone, were both released yesterday evening.' It is believed, however, that police have a clue as to the real culprits, and that it is being prosecuted by Mr. Anthony Jones of Scotland Yard, with all of his well-known energy and sagacity. Further arrests may be expected at any moment. <laughs> well, that's satisfactory, far as it goes, thought I. Friend Shulto is safe, at any rate. I wonder what the fresh clue might be, though it seems to be a stereotype form wherever the police have made a blunder. I tossed the paper down upon the table, but at that moment my eye caught an advertisement in the agony column. It ran this way. Lost. Whereas Mordecai Smith, boatman, and his son Jim left Smith's Wharf about three o'clock last Tuesday morning at the steam launch Aurora. Black with two red stripes, funnel black with a white band, the sum of five pounds will be paid to anyone who can give information to Mrs. Smith at Smith's Wharf or at 221 Baker Street as to the whereabouts of the said Mordecai Smith and the launch Aurora. This was clearly Holmes's doing. The Baker Street address was enough to prove that. It struck me as rather ingenious because it may be read by the fugitives without their seeing in it more than the natural anxiety of a wife for her missing husband. It was a long day. Every time that a knock came to the door or a sharp step passed down the street, I imagined it was either Holmes returning or an anfer or an anfer of Avafafnath. I imagined it was either Holmes returning or an answer to his advertisement. I tried to read, but my thoughts would wander off to our strange quest and to the ill-assorted and villainous pair whom we were pursuing. Could there be, I wondered, some radical flaw in my companion's reasoning? Might he be suffering from some huge self-deception? Was it not possible that his nimble and speculative mind had built up this wild theory on faulty premises? I had never known him to be wrong, and yet the keenest reasoner may occasionally be deceived. He was likely, I thought, to fall into error through the over-refinement of his logic, his preference for a subtle and bizarre explanation when a plainer and more commonplace one lay ready at his hand. Yet, on the other hand, I had myself seen the evidence, and I had heard the reasons for his deductions. When I looked back upon the long chain of curious circumstances, many of them trivial in themselves, but all tending in the same direction, I could not disguise from myself that even if Holmes's explanation were incorrect, the true theory must be equally outré and startling. At three o'clock in the afternoon, there was a loud peal at the bell. 
An authoritative voice in the hall, and to my surprise, no less a person than Mr. Athelney Jones was shown up to me. Very different was he, however, from the brusque and masterful professor of common sense who had taken over the case so confidently at Upper Norwood. His expression was downcast, and his bearing meek, even apologetic. Good day, sir, good day, said he. Mr. Sherlock Holmes is out, I understand. Yes, and I cannot be sure when he'll get back. But perhaps you would care to wait, take that chair and try one of these cigars. Thank you. Don't mind if I do, said he, mopping his face with a red bandana handkerchief. And a uh, whiskey and soda. Oh, well, half a glass. It is very hot for a time of the year, and I've had a good deal to worry and try me. You know my theory about this Norwood case? I remember that you expressed one. Well, I have been obliged to reconsider it. I had my net drawn tightly round Mr. Shorto, sir, when pop he went through a hole in the middle of it. He was able to prove an alibi which could not be shaken. From the time he left his brother's room, he was never out of sight of someone or another, so it could not have been he who climbed over rooftops and through trapdoors. It's a very dark case, and my professional credit is at stake. I shall be very glad of a little assistance. Yeah, we all need help sometimes, said I. Your friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, is a wonderful man, sir, said he in a husky and confidential voice. He is a man who is not to be beat. I have known that young man to go into a good many cases, but I never saw the case yet he could not throw light upon. He is irregular in his method, and a little quick, perhaps, in jumping at theories. But on the whole, I think he would have made a most promising officer, and I don't care who knows it. I've heard a wire from him this morning, by which I understand he's got some clue to this Shulto business. Here is the message. He took the telegram out of his pocket and handed it to me. It was dated from Poplar at twelve o'clock. Go to Baker Street at once, it said. If I've not returned, wait for me. I'm close on the track of the Shulto gang. You can come with us tonight if you want to be in at the finish. This sounds well. He's evidently picked up a scent again, said I. Ah, then he has been at fault too, exclaimed Jones with evident satisfaction. Yes, even the best of us is thrown off sometimes. Of course, this may prove to be a false alarm, but it is my duty as an officer of the law to allow no chance to slip. Oh, but there is someone at the door. Perhaps... This is he. A heavy step was heard ascending the stair, with a great wheezing and rattling as from a man who was sorely put out for the breath. Once or twice he stopped, as though the climb were too much for him, but at last he made his way to our door and entered. 
His appearance corresponded to the sounds which we had heard. He was an aged man, clad in seafaring garb with an old pea jacket buttoned up to his throat. His back was bowed, his knees were shaky, his breathing was painfully asthmatic. As he leaned upon a thick oaken cudgel, his shoulders heaved in the effort to draw air into his lungs. He had a colored scarf round his chin, and I could see little of his face save a pair of keen, dark eyes overhung by bushy white brows and long side whiskers. Altogether, he gave me the impression of a respectable master mariner who had fallen into years and poverty. "'Eh? What is it, my man?' I asked. He looked about him in a slow, methodical fashion of old age." "'Is Mr. Sherlock Holmes here?' said he. "'No, but I'm acting for him. "'You can tell me any message that you've got for him.' "'It was to he himself I was to tell it,' said he. "'But I tell you I'm acting for him. "'Is it about Mr. Mordecai Smith's boat?' "'Yes, I knows well where it is, "'and I knows where the men he is after are.' And I knows where the treasure is. He knows all about it. All right, then tell me and I shall let him know. It was to him I was to tell it, he repeated with the petulant obstinacy of a very old man. All right, then you must wait for him. No, no, I ain't gonna lose a whole tea to please no one. If Mr. Holmes ain't here, Mr. Holmes must find out about it for himself. I don't care to look at either of you, and I won't tell a word. He shuffled toward the door, but Athelney Jones got in front of him. Wait a bit, my friend, said he. You've got important information. You must not walk off. We shall keep you, whether you like it or not, until our friend returns. The old man made a little run toward the door, but as Athelney Jones put his broad back up against it, he recognized the uselessness of resistance. "'And a pretty sort of treatment this is,' he cried, stamping his stick. "'I come here to see a gentleman, and you two, who I never saw in me life, seize me and treat me in this fashion.' "'Yeah, you'd be none the worse,' I said. "'We shall recompense you for the loss of your time. Sit over on the sofa and you will not have to wait long.' He came across sullenly enough and seated himself with his face resting upon his hands. Jones and I resumed our cigars and talk. Suddenly, however, Holmes's voice broke in upon us. "'I think you might offer me a cigar, too,' he said. We both started in our chairs. There was Holmes, sitting close to us with an air of quiet amusement. "'Holmes!' I exclaimed. "'You're here, but where's the old man?' "'Here is the old man,' said he, holding out a heap of white hair. "'Here he is, wig, whiskers, eyebrows, and all.' I thought my disguise was pretty good, but I hardly expected that it would stand that test. <laughs> you rogue! cried Jones, highly delighted. You would have made an actor, and a rare one. You had the proper workhouse cough, and those weak legs of yours are worth ten pound a week. I thought I knew the glint in your eye, though. You didn't get away from us so easily, you see. <laughs> I've been working in that get-up all day, he said, lighting his cigar. You see, a good many of the criminal classes begin to know me, especially since our friend here took to publishing some of my cases, so I can only go on the warpath under some simple disguise like this one. You got my wire? Yes, that's what brought me here. How has your case prospered? 
It is all come to nothing. I've had to release two of my prisoners, and there is no evidence against the other two. Never mind. We shall give you two others in the place of them. But you must put yourself under my orders. You are welcome to all the official credit, but you must act in the line that I point out. Is that agreed? Oh, entirely, if you'll help me to the men. Well, then, in the first place, I shall want a fast police boat, a steam launch, to be at the Westminster Stairs at seven o'clock. That is easily managed. There is always one about there, but I can step across the road and telephone to make sure. Then I shall want two staunch men in case of resistance. There will be two or three on the boat. What else? When we secure the men, we shall get the treasure. I think it would be a pleasure to my friend here to take the box round to the young lady to whom half of it rightfully belongs. Let her be the first to open it. Eh, Watson? It would be a great pleasure to me. Rather an irregular proceeding, said Jones, shaking his head. However, the whole thing is irregular, and I suppose we must wink at it. The treasure must afterward be handed over to the authorities until after the official investigation. Certainly. That is easily managed. One other point. I should much like to have a few details about this matter from the lips of Jonathan Small himself. You know I like to work the details of my cases out. There is no objection to my having an unofficial interview with him, either here in my rooms or elsewhere, as long as he is efficiently guarded. Well, you are the master of the situation. I have had no proof yet of the existence of this Jonathan Small. However, if you can catch him, I don't see how I could refuse you an interview with him. That is understood, then. Perfectly. Is there anything else? Only that I insist upon your dining with us. It will be ready in half an hour. I have oysters and a brace of grouse with something a little choice in white wines. Watson, you have never yet recognised my merits as a housekeeper. have it folks back on the trail again and something else to occupy Sherlock Holmes's lively mind disguises just just play acting disguises uh you know hanging out down at the docks in a, a fake beard with fake eyebrows on mm, fake eyebrows good stuff um Holmes does get bored, doesn't he? But that boredom does seem to lend itself toward this work, right? With this boredom, he has decided he is <laughs> he's going to uh, he's going to put on fake eyebrows, uh, fake hair. He's going to rattle his legs around and be all impatient like an old man would be. And he's gonna go hang out at the docks, get some news. And apparently, he has succeeded in doing so. Um, that is about all the review that we really need ultimately he has asked for a few things um kind of insisted on a few things if he is to allow athelney jones to kind of complete this case himself and uh and get the credit then he sherlock has a few things that he will want for help um he's going to want a fast police boat and a couple of strong men to go with um 
just in case the uh, the suspects do not come willingly. Uh, and he wishes for uh, he wishes for Watson to be able to deliver this treasure directly to Mrs. Morstan. Miss Morstan. I keep getting that wrong. Um, uh, he wants to be able to. Uh, he wants to allow Watson to deliver this treasure uh, directly and allow Miss Morstan to be kind of the first to open it. Um, there you have it. There you have it, folks. That's our review. Um, I mean, I'm kind of itching to get into this anyway, so I figure we should just go on to the next one. What do you say? What do you think? Does that sound about right? Uh, he's invited Athelney Jones to stay. Um, we have oysters and a brace of grouse with something a little choice in the white wines. Okay, there you go. Got some good white wine, got some oysters, uh, some grouse. Just sounds, just British as all hell. Um, <laughs> I've never had good oysters. I've had great mussels, but not great oysters. Um, uh, I think I've only had, like, oysters once or twice. But, yeah, I just can't really get, I can't get behind this. That's my hope, Shotzi. Shotzi says, you know, Sam, by changing certain words and phrases, you're opening this up to be used in more classrooms. That is my hope. Yeah, I I, I do want this to be sort of more generally available and to, to not, like, I don't want to just change it to sort of, um, I don't know, to, to purify it, to, 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 to scrub it clean. Um, I, I do want to still bring attention to these things because these were certainly elements of the age and uh, uh, should be left in that age, should be left far behind us. Um, uh, and so, with that in mind, uh, I hope that we can leave behind the bad parts, bring the good parts with us. That is my hope. Um, and uh, move on. <laughs> Move on with some some good stuff. Yeah, to, to let people enjoy it without being completely disgusted. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, uh, I think there there is there is a small amount of validity in the, like, this was just part of the times thing. But I think that validity only kind of extends as far as we know that these are not anomalous people right that's that's the only thing that it really i think has strong value uh is that these are not uh th these are people who were typical of their time because they feel typical ways about it that's about it you know uh, so far as to to discuss them as not having insane point of views um and i, I mean that in a in a very literal sense they are they're not people who are mentally ill but at the same time like it is wrong it can be wrong without being mentally ill that's for damn sure. <laughs> All right. So there's that. Um, and with that, I think let's roll on into our next chapter. It's time to have Mr. Athelney Jones for dinner. Dun, dun, dun. No, not really. One, two, one, two, three, four. Oh, my God. All right. Well, you, you have to press the button twice. Otherwise, it doesn't come up. One, two, one, two, three, four. Chapter 10. The End of the Islander Our meal was a merry one. Holmes could talk exceedingly well when he chose, and that night he did choose. 
He appeared to be in a state of nervous exultation. I've never known him so brilliant. He spoke on a quick succession of subjects. On miracle plays, on medieval pottery, on Stradivarius violins, on the Buddhism of Ceylon, on the warships of the future, handling each as though he had made a special study of it. His bright humor marked the reaction from his black depression of the preceding days. Athelney Jones proved to be a sociable soul in his hours of relaxation and faced his dinner with the air of a bon vivant. For myself, I felt elated at the thought that we were nearing the end of our task. And I caught something of Holmes's gaiety. None of us alluded during dinner to the cause that brought us together. When the cloth was cleared, Holmes glanced at his watch and filled up three glasses with port. One bumper, said he, to the success of our little expedition. And now it is high time that we were off. Have you got a pistol, Watson? I've got my old service revolver in my desk. You best take it, then. It is well to be prepared. I see that the cab is at the door. I ordered it for half past six. It was a little past seven before we reached the Westminster Wharf and found our launch waiting for us. Holmes eyed it critically. Is there anything to mark it as a police boat? Yes, that green lamp at the side. Then take it off. The small change was made. We stepped on board and the ropes were cast off. Jones, Holmes, and I sat in the stern. There was one man at the rudder, one to tend the engines, and two burly police officers up front. Where to? asked Jones. To the tower. Tell them to stop opposite Jacobson's yard. Our craft was evidently a very fast one. We shot past the long lines of loaded barges as though they were stationary. Holmes smiled with satisfaction as we overhauled a river steamer and left her behind us. We ought to be able to catch anything on the river, he said. Well, hardly that, but there are not many launches to beat us. We shall have to catch the Aurora, and she has a name for being a clipper. I will tell you how the land lies, Watson. You recollect how annoyed I was at being balked by so small a thing? Yeah. Well, I gave my mind a thorough rest by plunging into a chemical analysis. One of our greatest statesmen said that a change of work is the best rest, and so it is. When I had succeeded in dissolving the hydrocarbon which I was at work, I came back to our problem of the shortos, and thought the whole matter out again. My boys have been up the river and down the river without result. The launch was not at any landing stage or wharf, nor had it returned. Yet it can hardly have been scuttled to hide their traces, though that always remained a possibility if all either hypotheses had failed. I knew that this man Small had a certain degree of low cunning, but I did not think him capable of the nature of delicate finesse that is usually a product of higher education. I then reflected that since he had certainly been in London some time, as we have evidence he maintained a continual watch over the Pondicherry Lodge, he could hardly leave at a moment's notice, but would need some little time if it were only a day, to arrange his affairs. That was a balance of probability, at any rate. It seems to be a little weak to me, said I. It's more probable that he'd arranged his affairs before he ever set out upon this expedition. No, I hardly think so. This lair of his would be too valuable a retreat, in case of need for him to give it up until he was sure that he could do without it. But a second consideration struck me. Jonathan Small must have felt that the peculiar appearance of his companion would give rise to gossip, and possibly be associated with his Norwood tragedy. 
He was quite sharp enough to see that. They had started from their headquarters under the cover of darkness, and he would wish to get back before the broad light. Now, it was half-past three o'clock, according to Mrs. Smith, when they got on the boat. It would be quite bright, and people would have been about an hour or so. Therefore, I argued, they would not go very far. They paid Smith well to hold his tongue, reserved his launch for the final escape, and hurried to their lodgings with the treasure box. In a couple of nights, when they had time to see the papers that they took, and whether there was any suspicion, they would make their way under cover of darkness to some ship at Gravesend or in the Downs, where no doubt they had already arranged for passages to America or to the colonies. By the launch, they could not have taken that to their lodgings. Quite so. I argue that the launch must be no great way off, in spite of its invisibility. I then put myself in the place of small and looked at it as a man of his capacity would. He would probably consider that to send back the launch or to keep it at the wharf would make easy pursuit if the police did happen to be on his track. How, then, could he conceal the launch and yet have her at hand when he wanted? I wondered what I should do myself if I were in his shoes. I could only think of one way of doing it. I might land on the launch over some boat builder or repairer with directions to make a trifling change in her. She would then be removed to his shed or yard, and so be efficiently concealed, while at the same time I could have her at a few hours' notice. That seems simple enough. It is just these very simple things which are very liable to be overlooked. However, I determined to act upon this idea. I started at once in this harmless seaman's rig, and inquired as to all the yards on the river. I drew blank at fifteen, but at the sixteenth, Jacobson's, I learned that the Aurora had been handed over to them two days ago by a wooden-legged man with some trivial directions as to her rudder. "'There ain't naught amiss with her rudder,' said the foreman. "'There she lies, with the red streaks. At that moment, who should come down but Mordecai Smith, the missing owner? He was rather worse for the liquor. I should not, of course, have known him, but he bellowed out his name in the name of the launch. "'I want her tonight at eight o'clock,' said he. Eight o'clock sharp, mind, for I've got two gentlemen who won't be kept waiting. They had evidently paid him well, for he was flush with money, chucking shillings about to the men. I followed him some distance, but he subsided into an alehouse, so I went back to the yard, and happened to pick up one of my boys on the way. I stationed him as a sentry over the launch. He used to stand at the water's edge and wave his handkerchief to us when they start. We shall be lying off in the stream, and it will be strange if we do not take the men, treasure and all. You've got it all planned very neatly, whether they are the right men or not, said Jones. But if the affair were in my hands, I should have had a body of police in Jacobson's yard, and arrested them when they came down. Which would have been never... This man, small as a pretty shrewd fellow, he would send a scout on ahead. If anything made him suspicious, he would lie snug for another week. Oh, but you might have stuck to Mordecai Smith, and so been led to their hiding place. In that case, I should have wasted my day. I think it is a hundred to one against Smith knowing where they live. As long as he's got liquor and a good pay, why should he ask questions? They send him messages on what to do. No, I thought over every possibility, of course, and this was the best. While this conversation had been proceeding, we had been shooting the low series of bridges which spanned the Thames. As we passed the city, the last rays of sun were gilding the cross upon the summit of St. Paul's. It was twilight before we reached the tower. That is Jacobson's Yard, 
said Holmes, pointing to a bristle of masts and rigging on the Surrey side. Cruise gently up and down here under the cover of the string lighters. He took a pair of night glasses from his pocket and gazed some time at the shore. I see my sentry at his post, he remarked, but no sign of a handkerchief. Suppose we go downstream a short way and lie in wait for them, said Jones eagerly. We were all eager by this time, even the policemen and the stokers, who had a very vague idea of what was going forward. We've got no right to take anything for granted, Holmes answered. It is certainly ten to one that they go downstream, but we cannot be certain. From this point we can see the entrance of the yard, and they can hardly see us. It will be a clear night, plenty of light. We must stay where we are. See how the folks swarm over yonder in the gaslight. They're coming from work in the yard. Dirty-looking rascals, but I suppose everyone has got some little immortal spark concealed about him. You would not think it to look at them. There is no a priori probability about it. A strange enigma is man. Someone calls him a soul concealed in an animal, I suggested. Winwood Reed is good upon the subject, said Holmes. He remarks that while the individual man is an insoluble puzzle, in the aggregate he becomes a mathematical certainty. You can, for example, never foretell what any one man will do, but you can say with precision what an average number of people will be up to. Individuals vary, but percentages remain constant. So says the statistician. Oh, but do I see a handkerchief? Surely there is a white flutter over yonder? Eh, there's your boy, I cried. I can see him plainly. And there's the aurora, exclaimed Jones. And going like the devil. Full speed ahead, engineer. Make after that launch with the yellow light. By heaven, I shall never forgive myself if she proves to have the heels of us. She slipped unseen through the yard entrance and passed behind two or three small craft, so that she had fairly certainly got up to speed before we saw her. Now she was flying down the stream, near to the shore, going at a tremendous rate. Jones looked gravely at her and shook his head. She's going very fast, he said. I doubt if we shall catch her. You must catch her, cried Holmes between his teeth. Keep it on, then, Stokers. Make her do all she can. If we burn the boat, we must have them. We were fairly after her now. The furnaces roared and the powerful engines whizzed and clanked. <coughs> like the great metallic heart. Her sharp, steep prow cut through the river water and sent two rolling waves to the right and left of us. With every throb of the engines, we sprang and quivered like a living thing. One great yellow lantern on our bow threw a long, flickering funnel of light out in front of us. Right ahead, a dark blur upon the water showed where the aurora lay. With a swirl of white foam behind her spoke of the pace at which she was going. We flashed past barges, steamers, merchant vessels, in and out, behind this one and around the other. Voices hailed out to us in the darkness, but the aurora thundered on, and still we followed close upon her track. "'Pile it on, men! Pile it on!' cried Holmes, looking down into the engine room while the fierce glow from below beat upon his eager, aquiline face. "'Get every pound of steam you can!' "'I think we gain a little,' said Jones, with his eyes upon the aurora. "'I'm sure of it,' said I. "'We shall be up to her in a few minutes.' At that moment, however, as our evil fate would have it, a tug with three barges in tow blundered in between us. It was only by putting our helm hard down that we avoided a collision, and before we could round them and recover our way, the Aurora had gained a good two hundred yards. She was still, however, well in view, and the murky, uncertain twilight was settling into a clear, starlit night. 
Our boilers were strained to their utmost, and the frail shell vibrated and creaked with the fierce energy which was driving us along. We had shot through the pool, past the West India docks, down the long Deptford Reach, and up again after the rounding of the Isle of Dogs. The dull blur in front of us resolved now clearly enough into the dainty aurora. Jones turned on the searchlight so that we could see plainly the figures upon her deck. One man sat by the stern with something black between his knees over which he stooped. Beside him lay a dark mass which looked like a Newfoundland dog. The boy held the tiller while against the red glare of the furnace I could see old Smith, stripped to the waist and shoveling coals for dear life. They may have had some doubt at first as to whether we were really pursuing them, but now as we followed every winding and turning that they took, there was no longer any question about it. At Greenwich, we took about 300 paces behind them. At Blackwall, we could not have been more than 250. I have coursed many creatures in many countries through my checkered career, but never did sport give me such a wild thrill as this mad flying manhunt down the Thames. Steadily, we drew upon them, yard by yard. In the silence of the night, we could hear the panting and clanking of their machinery. The man in the stern still crouched upon the deck, and his arms were moving as though he were busy, while every now and then he would look back up and measure with a glance the distance which still separated us. Nearer we came, and nearer. Jones yelled to them to stop. We were not more than four boats' lengths behind them, both boats flying at a tremendous pace. It was a clear reach of the river, with barking level upon one side and the melancholy Plumstead marshes upon the other. At our hail, the man in the stern sprang up from the deck and shook his two clenched fists at us, cursing in a high, cracked voice. He was a good-sized, powerful man, and as he stood, poising himself with legs astride, I could see from the thigh downward there was a wooden stump upon the right side. At the sound of his stringent, angry cries, there was movement in the huddled bundle upon the deck. It straightened itself into a little man, the smallest I've ever seen. Holmes had already drawn his revolver, and I whipped out mine at the sight of the man. He was wrapped in some sort of dark ulster or blanket, which left only his face exposed. "'Fire if he raises his hand,' said Holmes quietly. We were within a boat's length by this time, and almost within touch of our quarry. I could see two of them now as they stood apart, the white man with his legs far apart, shrieking out curses. It was well now that we had so clear a view of him. Even as we looked, he plucked out from under his covering a short, round piece of wood, like a school ruler, and clapped it to his lips. Our pistols rang out together. He whirled around, threw up his arms with a kind of choking cough, fell sideways into the stream. I caught one glimpse of his venomous eyes amidst the white swirl of the waters. At that same moment, the wooden-legged man threw himself upon the rudder and put it hard down so the boat made straight for the southern bank, while we shot past her stern, only clearing her by a few feet. We were around her in an instant, but she was already nearly at the bank. It was a wild and desolate place where the moon glimmered upon a wide expanse of marshland and pools of stagnant water and beds of decaying vegetation. The launch, with a dull thud, ran up the muddy bank with her bow in the air and her stern flush with the water. The fugitive sprang out, but his stump instantly sank its whole length into the sodden soil. In vain, he struggled and writhed. Not one step could he possibly take, either forward or backward. He yelled in impotent rage and kicked frantically into the mud with his other foot, but his struggles only bore his wooden pin the deeper into the sticky bank. When we brought our launch alongside, he was so firmly anchored that it was only by throwing the end of a rope over his shoulders that we were able to haul him out and to drag him like some evil fish over our side. The two smiths, father and son, sat sullenly in their launch but came aboard meekly enough when commanded. 
The Aurora herself we hauled off and made fast to our stern. A solid iron chest of Indian workmanship stood upon the deck. This, there could be no question, was the same that it contained the ill-omened treasure of the Sholtos. There was no key, but it was of considerable weight, and so we transferred it carefully to our little cabin. As we steamed slowly upstream again, we flashed our searchlight in every direction, but there was no sight of the islander. Somewhere in the dark ooze at the bottom of the Thames lie the bones of that strange visitor to our shores. See here, said Holmes, pointing to the wooden hatchway. We were hardly quick enough with our pistols. There, sure enough, just behind where we had been standing, stuck one of those murderous darts which we knew so well. It must have whizzed between us at the instant that we had fired. Holmes smiled at it and shrugged his shoulders in an easy fashion, but I confess it made me sick to think of the horrible death which had passed so close to us that night. All right, folks, there it is. Chapter three out of the four that I intend to read today. Like I said, kind of a longer one than average. Uh, we're running up on four o'clock and we have got one more chapter to go. Chapter 11, our next and final chapter after that, chapter 12, the strange story of Jonathan Small, we shall be reading next week. Shotzi says, oh, Lord, as much as I love Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. Yeah, that in reaction to Orly Rose saying, I tried to study Mark Twain with my seven-year-old and I was aghast. Yep, there are some things that are just tough to read nowadays uh, because they include a lot of, they're just a lot of flat racism. It's just a lot of it. Um, uh, I am I'm endeavoring to cut out some of that for this, but again, I don't want to skip past it. Um, I don't want to I don't want to try and and uh, whitewash it, as they say. Um, uh, once again, as we get a description of this uh, uh, of this uh, partner in crime, um, it is absolutely like un undeniably racist. <laughs> I, uh, uh, what, what is the word? Uh, atrocious. It is atrociously racist. That was the word that Holmes, or that, that Watson used earlier. Um, but yeah, a, a decent pace of that in this. There's a a, a long measure of it. Um, however, let's talk about the, the status of our mysteries here. We have got um, our, our, our fellows... Sherlock and Watson, um, with Athelney Jones sort of in tow here, uh, with the promise that he'll get the credit as long as they uh, help Sherlock and let him undertake this operation as he wishes. Um, Sherlock is lying in wait. We are we are in this little fast boat, the fastest that the police can manage, um, just outside of a shop. It's essentially like uh, if um, it, it, earlier on we sort of discovered that the best way for them to do this, how have they kept this ship out of sight for so long, this little boat? Well, it's a little bit like if someone was looking for your car. Um, they would look in your garage first, of course, and then they would look at all the places that you go. Where it would be easily hidden is in a mechanic, at, at a mechanic shop somewhere. You know, you give them, you give them, uh, you know, something kind of uh, uh, paltry to deal with, and it'll be in their garage, and it could be anywhere at that point, and it'll be under some cover. So, um, 
made the made the proposition much more difficult of finding this boat but they track it down sherlock with his disguise uh they lie in wait and they have this long boat chase which i would be really really entertained to see just at what pace precisely they were going um because of course watson describes this as like this heart pounding chase but let me see there's no way i'm gonna be able to google search this in time but let me just give it one shot how fast were jetty steamers in what the 1800s locomotives uh steamboats of the 1800s what year is this uh sign of four year uh sign of four oh published sign of four published in 19 uh excuse me 1890 um The speed of 1890s steamships. Okay, well, we're gonna get it exactly. Oh no, but this will be this will be like big old steamships, won't it? Yeah, it will. Wah, wah, wah. Anyway, I would simply, if somebody else wants to uh, take a look at that, I don't want to have you. Once again, I don't care for this to become the watch Sam Google stuff show, but it, it would be very entertaining to me to find out just how fast was this high speed chase. Anyway. Um, <laughs> So uh, they engage in this high-speed chase uh, during which um, uh, the uh, the shorter companion, the one with the blow dart, uh, gets off a shot at Sherlock and Watson. They return fire with their pistols and manage to kill him. Uh, and then finally we are left with just um, the, the man with the wooden leg, um, who we know to be Jonathan Small. We find uh, that uh, he tries to bail off uh, onto the riverbank, but uh, he gets stuck in the mud, and that is where we find ourselves. The treasure chest is here. Let's find out what happens next. But Shotzi says, um, um, if you're an adult and independently reading it and can appreciate it for a good story, it's one thing. Uh, this is for people in general, uh, and you're building a nice following of school kids. Yeah, I... And that's the thing that I've, you know, I, we, I talked about that with some friends regarding um, regarding the Lord of the Rings, especially. You know, when there is when there's racism in a in a body of work that is generally considered to be, um, uh, you know, to have been to have been done with talent, right? When there is when there is something that clearly negative in something that is uh, by by sort of the virtue of skill with which it was written is considered to be a positive thing. Um, I, there's a lot of discussion about the ability to sort of like read that and sort of put those things aside and just simply sort of put them off to the side. I, I have not made enough study of it to find out exactly, but I do know that there is definitely something in humans that, it, that makes it very challenging for them to put these things aside. This is not, so, without drawing some attention to it, it does seem to me that humans are in general pretty bad about internalizing only the only the the parts that they wish to inter internalize. Um, I think this is the same reason why you know Fox News has gotten gotten its hold on so many of our parents. Um, uh, you know uh, when when something is uh, disguised uh, or or sort of blended in, it can be challenging to spot when you are coming into it totally uninitiated um and uh and as such yeah I, th I think it's important to call it when we see it um rather than just sort of like hope to be absorbing the right things 
it is a tough discussion overall and one which I do not feel like I am uh, a voice that can have any ring of authority to it. But uh, I do hope that y'all are enjoying this. Uh, I hope that we will continue to call it as we find them um, and uh, do our best not to let it just sort of sneak by us. Let's find out what becomes of this treasure. Chapter 11, The Great Agra Treasure. Our captive sat in the cabin opposite to the iron box, which he had done so much and waited so long to gain. He was a sunburned, reckless-eyed fellow with a network of lines and wrinkles all over upon his mahogany features, which told of a hard, open-air life. There was a singular prominence about his bearded chin, which marked a man who would not easily be turned from his purpose. His age may have been fifty or thereabouts, for his black, curly hair was thickly shot with gray. His face in repose was not an unpleasant one, though his heavy brows and aggressive chin gave him, as I have lately seen, a terrible expression when moved to anger. He sat now with his handcuffed hands upon his lap and his head sunk upon his breast, while he looked with his keen, twinkling eyes at the box which had been the cause of his ill-doings. It seemed to me that there was more sorrow than anger in his rigid and contained countenance. Once he looked upon me with a gleam of something like humor in his eyes. "'Well, Jonathan Small,' said Holmes, lighting a cigar. "'I'm sorry it's come to this.' "'I saw my sir,' he answered frankly. "'I don't believe that I can swing over the job. "'I gave you my word on the book. "'I never raised a hand against Mr. Sholto. "'Was that little hellhound companion of mine "'who shot one of his cursed darts into him? "'I had no part in it, sir. "'I was grieved as if it had been my blood relation. "'I welted him with the slack end of a rope for it, "'but it was done. "'I could not undo it again.' "'Have a cigar,' said Holmes.' "'You'd best take a pull out of my flask, for you're very wet. "'How could you expect a man of his stature to overpower Mr. Sholto "'and hold him while you were climbing the rope?' "'You seem to know about it as though you were there, sir. "'The truth is I had hoped to find the room clear. "'I knew the habits of the house pretty well, "'and it was the time when Mr. Sholto usually went down to his supper. "'I shall make no secret of the business. "'The best defence that I can make is the simple truth.' Now, if it had been the old major, I would have swung for him with a light heart. I would have thought no more a knife in him than of smoking his cigar. But it's cursed hard that I should have lagged over his young Sholto, with whom I had no quarrel whatsoever. You are under the charge of Mr. Athelney Jones of Scotland Yard. He's going to bring you up to my rooms, and I shall ask you for a true account of this matter. You must make clean breast of it, for if you do, I hope that I may be of use to you. I think I can prove that the poison acts so quickly that the man was dead before you ever reached the room. That he was, sir. I never got such a turn in my life as when I saw him grinning at me with his head on his shoulders. I climbed through the window. Fairly shook me, sir. 
I would have killed Tonga for it had he not scrambled off. That was how he came to leave his club and some of his darts too, as he tells me, which I dare say helped you to get on our track, though how you kept on it, I, I can't tell. I don't feel no malice against you for it, but it does seem a queer thing, he added with a bitter smile. And I, who've got a fair claim to nigh on half a million of money, should spend the first half of my life building a breakwater in the Andams, and I'm like to spend the other half digging drains at Dartmoor. It was an evil day for me when I first clapped eyes upon the merchant Ahmet and had to do with the Agra treasure, which never brought anything but a curse yet upon the man who owned it. To him it brought murder, to Major Salto it brought fear and guilt, to me it's meant slavery for life. At this moment Athelney Jones thrust his broad face and heavy shoulders into the tiny cabin. Quite a family party, he remarked. I think I'll have a pull at that flask, Holmes. And I think we may all congratulate each other. Pity we didn't take the other alive, but there was no choice. I say, Holmes, you must confess you cut it rather fine. It was all we could do to overhaul her. All is well that ends well. But I certainly did not know that the Aurora was such a clipper, said Holmes. Smith says she's one of the fastest launches on the river, and if he had had another man's help with the engines, we should never have caught her. He swears he knew nothing of this Norwood business. And neither he did cried our prisoner. Not a word. I chose his launch, cause I heard she was a flyer. We told him nothing, but we paid him well. And he was to get something handsome if we reached our vessel, the Esmeralda, at Gravesend, outward bound for the Brazils. Well, if he's done no wrong, we shall see no wrong comes to him. If we're pretty quick in catching our men, we're not so quick in condemning them. It was amusing to notice how the consequential Jones was already beginning to give himself airs on the strength of the capture. From the slight smile which played over Sherlock Holmes's face, I could see that the speech had not been lost upon him. "'We shall be at Vauxhall Bridge presently,' said Jones, "'and shall land you, Dr. Watson, with the treasure box. I need hardly tell you that I am taking a very grave responsibility upon myself in doing this.' It is most irregular, but of course an agreement is an agreement. I must, however, as a matter of duty, send an inspector with you, since you have so valuable a charge. You will drive, no doubt. Yeah, I shall drive. It is a pity there is no key that we must make an inventory first. You will have to break it open. Where is the key, my man? At the bottom of the river, said Small shortly. Ah, there was no use of your giving this unnecessary trouble. We've had work enough already through you. However, Doctor, I do not need to warn you to be careful. Bring the box back with you to the Baker Street rooms. You'll find us there on our way to the station. They landed me at Vauxhall, with my heavy iron box and with a bluff, genial inspector as my companion. A quarter of an hour's drive brought us to Mrs. Cecil Forrester's. The servant seemed surprised at so late a visitor, 
Mrs. Cecil Forrester was out for the evening, she explained, and very likely to be late. Miss Morstan, however, was in the drawing-room. So to the drawing-room I went, box in hand, leaving the obliging inspector in the cab. She was seated by the open window, dressed in some sort of white diaphanous material, with a little touch of scarlet at the neck and waist. The soft light of a shaded lamp fell upon her as she leaned back in the basket chair, playing over her sweet, grave face and tinting with a dull, metallic sparkle the rich coils of her luxuriant hair. One white arm and hand drooped over the side of the chair, and her whole pose and figure spoke of an absorbing melancholy. At the sound of my footfall she sprang to her feet, however, and a bright flush of surprise and of pleasure colored her pale cheeks. "'I heard the cab drive up,' she said. "'I thought that Mrs. Forrester had come back very early, but I never dreamed it might be you. What news have you brought me?' "'Well, I brought you something better than news,' I said, putting down the box upon the table and speaking jovially and boisterously, though my heart was heavy within me. "'I brought you something which is worth all the news in the world.' I've brought you a fortune. She glanced at the iron box. Is that the treasure, then? She asked, coolly enough. Yes, this is the great Agra treasure. Half of it's yours and half is Daddy Ashulto's. You'll have a couple hundred thousand each. <laughs> Think about that. An annuity of ten thousand pounds. There will be few richer young ladies in England. Is it not glorious? I think I must have been rather overacting my delight, and that she detected a hollow ring in my congratulations, for I saw her eyebrows raise a little, and she glanced at me curiously. "'If I've got it,' she said, "'I owe it to you.' "'No, no, no, no,' I answered. "'Not to me, but to my friend Sherlock Holmes. "'With all the will in the world, "'I could never have followed up a clue "'which has taxed his analytical genius. "'As it was, we very nearly lost it in the last moment.' "'Please sit down and tell me about it, Dr. Watson,' said she. "'I narrated briefly what had occurred since I had seen her last. "'Holmes's new method of search, the discovery of the Aurora, "'the appearance of Athelney Jones, "'our expedition in the evening, and the wild chase down the Thames. "'She listened with parted lips and shining face to my recital of our adventures. "'When I spoke of the dart, which had so narrowly missed us, "'she turned so white that I feared she was about to faint. "'It's nothing,' she said, as I hastened to pour her out some water.' I'm all right again. It was a shock to me to hear that I placed my friends in so terrible peril. Well, that's all over, I answered. It was nothing. I will tell you no more gloomy details. Let us turn to something brighter. There is the treasure. What could be brighter than that? I got leave to bring it here with me, thinking that it would be of interest to you to see it. That would be of the greatest interest to me, she said. There was no eagerness in her voice, however. It had struck her, doubtless, that it might seem ungracious upon her part to be indifferent to a prize which it cost so much to win. "'What a pretty box,' she said, stooping over it. "'This is Indian work, I suppose?' "'Yeah, it's Benares metalwork. "'It's so heavy,' she exclaimed, trying to raise it. "'The box alone must be of some value. Where is the key?' "'Small threw it into the river,' I answered. I must borrow Mrs. Forrester's poker. There was in the front a thick and broad hasp, wrought in the image of a sitting Buddha. Under this I thrust the end of the poker and twisted it upward as a lever. The hasp sprang open with a loud snap. With trembling fingers I flung back the lid. We both stood, 
with astonishment. The box was empty. No wonder that it was heavy. The ironwork was two-thirds of an inch thick all around. It was massive, well-made, and solid, like a chest constructed to carry things of great price. But not one shred or crumb of metal or jewelry lay within it. It was absolutely and completely empty. So the treasure's lost, said Miss Morstan calmly. As I listened to the words and realized what they meant, a great shadow seemed to pass from my soul. I did not know how this Agra treasure had weighed me down until now that it was finally removed. It was selfish, no doubt, disloyal, wrong. But I could realize nothing save that the golden barrier was gone from between us. Thank God, I ejaculated from my very heart. She looked at me with a quick, questioning smile. And why do you say that? she asked. Because you are within my reach again, I said, taking her hand. She did not withdraw it. Because I love you, Mary, as truly as ever a man loved a woman. Because this treasure, these riches, sealed my lips. Now that they're gone, I can tell you how I love you. And that's why I said, thank God. Well, then I say, thank God too, she whispered, as I drew her to my side. Whoever had lost a treasure, I knew that night that I had gained one. The treasure is gone. <laughs> and where can it be? When did it disappear? Does Jonathan Small even know that it's gone? All these questions answered next week on Vintage Sidecar with Sam. Coming at you Tuesday afternoons. <laughs> Coming at you for your drive home. It's Sam in the afternoon. Vintage Sidecar, where we shed some light on classic lit. <laughs> 102.5. The stream. The f stream. Interesting. So it uh, that's a stream with an F on the front of it, apparently. Ridiculous. It's gone. But we do get this sweet moment. Now, um, of course, uh, uh, Watson recognizes that it is a selfish impulse, uh, which, which strikes him. Uh, that he's thankful that this... This treasure is indeed gone because it, it does indeed mean um, he can feel he can feel right again about uh, about expressing his adoration for Miss Morstan. Um, and now this is like there are some things to this which are goofy. Yes. Uh, but I do want to emphasize that um, this is one of those things that is an element of the time wherein Watson really is trying to do right by her. Right. And frankly, you know what? Perhaps it would even be kind of wrong to say that it's simply an element of the times because even nowadays I want you to imagine um if uh you know if if you were a detective and someone came into your life that you were romantically interested in but suddenly you learned oh yeah they're going to be like crazy rich soon uh it would it would definitely seem pretty disingenuous for you to suddenly be you know kind of fawning all over them right so um 
so I will kind of take that back a little bit. It's not necessarily a sign of the times, just that uh, Watson is, you know, kind of trying to do right by her overall. Um, and now with the uh, with the the new revealed fact that the treasure is nowhere to be seen, well. Watson doesn't need to have that impulse between him and her anymore. He expresses his adoration, and she seems to return it in kind. Uh, it's a good thing that Mrs. Cecil Forrester was out for this evening, because you can feel sure uh, she would have just lost her whole mind about this. She seems to be the, uh, I don't know, the, what, what will we call her? Uh, she seems to be maybe of the soap operatic persuasion. Um, and so <laughs> it's a good thing that uh, we had a, a chance for a private conversation before she returned. Of course, she will be elated to hear the news that this uh, this this thrilling romantic tale has ended uh, in none other than romance. <laughs> Shotzi says, well, that's kind of a sign of today's time with reality TV and all. Yeah, certainly. Um but yeah, uh, so so uh, Watson does not want to seem disingenuous, doesn't want to seem uh, like a, like a gold digger. Essentially, um, he he wants to you know he he wants to make sure that his affections are uh, understood in truth and not as a byproduct of some wealth that she may have just fallen into. There you have it, folks. But what shall become of Watson and Miss Morstan, uh, whose name do we even know? Her first name. We just know her as Miss Morstan. Um, let me see. M-O-R-S-T-A-N. Uh, let me go ahead and we're going to wrap all the way around to the beginning of this. Do we find your first name? Mary Morstan. Yes, we do. Okay. Mary. Mary Morstan. <laughs> there we go, folks. Um, everybody, that is the end of today's adventure. I thank you all very, very much for joining me. Um, I love y'all. Thanks for being here. Uh, we have run substantially longer than I kind of anticipated, and as such, today I believe is going to draw to a close. Um, as per usual, I thank you for being here. I do hope that you have a fantastic afternoon, evening, wherever in your life, wherever in your day you may land here. I'll see y'all folks later. Bye-bye.